Canucks Central Monday. It's Dan Richo and Shaw. We're here in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. A little bit of an earlier start for us today. We'll take you uh, to Seattle for the Monday Nighter and what is a bit of a must win for the Seahawks against the Philadelphia Eagles. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. But uh, focus remains on your Vancouver Canucks after a win yesterday in Chicago. And given the circumstances, taking three of four in back-to-backs to start a road trip where you're traveling through a couple of time zones, Throw the context of how they played out the window because, yeah, there's uh, some good and some bad mixed in there to be expected when yeah. you're traveling. You know, you'll take that every day of the week and twice on Sunday to uh, to take three or four in that in those circumstances. The micro evaluation of each one of those games can be a bit like we talked about the Minnesota game. They didn't play great, mm-hmm. you know, but Minnesota wasn't, ex- you know, fantastic. So if you wanted to grade Vancouver's performance at like a five and a half, let's say, or six, you were giving. Minnesota half a point better or one point better. And it wasn't a huge gulf between the two teams. Neither team was really sharp, early game, whatever. The Chicago game, bad start, strong finish, you take the win. So you can look at both those games individually in micro and say, hey, it wasn't great, it wasn't perfect. But macro, looking at those two games, you pick up, you'll take three out of four points. And even zooming out slightly more, they picked up points in six straight games. Yeah. Five of those main victories. You know, and... And I haven't, you know, I, I can't sit sit here and say that I've been listening to every minute of sports talk radio here today, <laughs> and, and I haven't read it or consumed everything uh, written about the team either. I know there's been a lot of positive, but the way I view it is like, sh- should we not have a real positive outlook about how the, these six games have gone, how this weekend went, and where the Canucks find themselves now, thirty game, thirty two games into the season, sitting at forty four points, top five team in point percentage, top four team in the National Hockey League in point percentage. I don't think there's really all that much. Well, like from my end, there's not much negativity, but it's more I'm just grading the team on a different scale now. You know, it's it's almost as if my expectations have risen with how they've played and because they've set a new standard for themselves as to how they want to be viewed. Like JT Miller last week when Tampa's in town, they're not a measuring stick. We just got to play our yeah. game. Like, you know, we, we play our game. That's all we care about. And I think that is indicative of how this team has gone from being a poor team in the National Hockey League yeah. to a good team in the National Hockey League. And so, you know, I am I said this uh, a while back. I'm kind of done with the, the micro-analyzing of every single outcome, every single game, and going into every little detail they had a good period here a bad period there or they lost the shot clock terrible course either expected goals yada 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 I'm done, like I'm done with it because the National Hockey League season it is a grind over 82 games you're not going to be in an advantageous position to win every single game and have your best effort but to grind away points in tough spots that's valuable, especially as you're eventually going to be fighting for positioning in the playoffs and where you sit in the Pacific Division. Well, there's always a hyper focus in Canadian markets, and I, and I think it's fair. Like I, I agree with you. I think we should judge the team uh, to a higher standard. At the same time, 
is the standard we're judging him by academic or realistic? Right. And that's where I wonder, because the realities are the schedules can be tough. Um, human performance isn't always linear. There are ups and downs. A lot of factors go into it. And good teams don't always play at their best, but they find ways to win games. I think part of the reason of some of the skepticism is what you kind of mentioned. You mentioned some of the under underlying numbers, some of the metrics, and, and people look at that and say, hey, maybe Vancouver is overachieving based on what they're generating or based on what the numbers tell. And there, there's no question, you know, they, they are riding some percentages. We all know, we talk about the PDO, their save percentage and shooting percentage combined, five on five, and how that leads the National Hockey League. And, and all those factors are true. But how often do we watch this team and say, hey, they don't belong in the same sheet of ice against the team they're playing against? And I think the way they've been able to find results, I think it's commendable. And, you know, it, it's not always pretty, but isn't there a level of resiliency you should credit them for? For still finding ways to come back and reset. And in games like in Minnesota, where they were so far behind the pace early on, yeah. but found a way to kind of even it out against Chicago. Yes, a bad hockey team, but they were awful for the first 15 minutes. Yeah. I mean, they were outshot 10 nothing. It was one nothing generated next to nothing offensively. The head coach was tough on them. But then they got it together, only allowed a goal, and the next thing you know, they take over the hockey game. Yeah, and it, it was almost, it felt like one of those games you would see here in Vancouver when the Canucks were toiling away at the bottom of the standings where, you know, the good team that came in knew all they had to do was turn it on for a little bit of that game and they'd be able to win it. That's kind of what happened yesterday for the Vancouver Canucks. So, yeah. yeah, like there's a text here that says, unfortunately, I feel like they played to the level of their competition. I don't, I, I don't, I think that's a narrative and not truth. Yeah. I think it's absolute narrative and not truth. So, what did they do against Leicester op opponents this year? Haven't they crushed Leicester opponents? I, I feel like we've, the, the large narrative around them is that they only beat bad teams. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> until so, they beat, you know, Tampa, Carolina, and, and Florida in this last week here at home. Yeah. I mean, they've throttled bad teams. Yes. Throughout the, throughout the year. Have they lost to San Jose so far? Yes, they have. Uh, do they not have a great game against Chicago, but still win? Yes. But I think that's narrative. And I think it's, and I think it's, a recency bias yeah. based on some of the things we've seen recently. But if we want to talk about picture and everything, like they've made they made hay against the lesser opponents. And yes, and here's the thing. I mean, Chicago has beat Vegas. The National Hockey League is a tough league. Yes. Bad teams beat good teams. Those things do happen. You know, th there are uh, there are these um, cliches people throw out that are completely false mm -hmm. oftentimes. And I know even Ian Cole mentioned it. He's like, well, good teams don't lose three in a row. Well, every Stanley Cup winner of the last 10 years at some point has lost three games in a row. Yes. You know, like those things do happen. You know, when we, we create these I think cliches sometimes uh, in these phrases because they sound good, they sound comfortable, but they're not true. Yeah. And sometimes we judge teams based on these like imaginary academic profiles and be like, ha, look, look what they did. And it's like, well, are we being realistic and truthful about what they're doing? And I'm not sitting here and saying the Canucks are the best team in the league. I'm not saying they're a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. Yeah. Their record indicates they are because they're a top five team right now, right? But in terms of true talent, yeah, I understand. There's more that has to happen and everything. But I do think we're, we're at a point now where there's almost over-analysis on some of, some of these things, and we're, like, twisting ourselves into pretzels to find fault with a team that has won, what, 21 games, nine, 20 of those in regulation. They have 20 regulation wins. Yeah. It's absurd. They have uh, nine losses, nine regulation losses in 32 games this season. I mean, well, that's pretty impressive. No matter how you slice it, how they've gotten here, it's impressive how they've gotten here. And they play to who they are as a team, right? They've got good goaltending. They've improved their defense. They play their team defense game 
pretty well most nights and make it hard on opponents to get a lot of great chances on them. And they rely on their high-end talent more often than not to get them over the line, to get the job done, to score on the power play. But those are the strengths of their team, and they play to the strengths of their team. They don't try to be something that they are not. And I think that is one of the values that this team has. And one of the things, to me, it's part of their identity that they play to their strengths, you know, that they sort of try to minimize the game to a point where one of our stars is going mm-hmm. to make the difference. Maybe it's Hughes on a night. Maybe it's Miller, our power play that we know can run hot and, and really be a difference maker. But one of the parts of this recent stretch where they've gone 5-0-1 is their top six isn't clicking the way that it was earlier in the season. And the third line has become the biggest story. Now, if you're a glass half empty, you'll say, well, you can't have your third line be your best line for as long as it has been for the Vancouver Canucks. If you're glass half full, you'll say, well, your third line is picking up the slack for when your stars are going through a little bit of a down period. Good teams do that. Mm -hmm. There's maybe one of those cliches that you were talking about. Yeah, good teams don't don't (laughs) lose games like this. Good teams don't lose three in a row. Good teams only do this. It's like, come on, it's 82 games. Good teams have bad performances all the time. The reality is this third line has really found something here, Sat. Yeah. They've played 138 minutes together now, and in those minutes they've controlled 58% of the shot share, they are plus two, which doesn't seem all that great, but they were you know, getting a lot of chances without a lot of results until these last few games where they've scored in each of the last three. Dakota Joshua scored again yesterday. Garland's the only one that hasn't scored, but he's got an assist in each of his last three games. And it's really been like this line has been a catalyst for the Vancouver Canucks lately. And it's I think a large part of it is due to Connor Garland sort of being the driver of that line, and it feels as though he's finally found himself a role on the Vancouver Canucks. He's the he is the most talented, effective player on that line. Yeah, and his talents are shining through in a massive way on that line. And you know, it, it, it's it's funny because you know, I've been very critical of Connor Garland's game uh, at times the past mm-hmm. couple of years, and even earlier this season, um, I saw. A, one of the things that I that I drove me crazy about Connor Garland was uh, <laughs> it was the uh, the. Inflated... Do we need to go to the tape of the post game show. I think we've we've heard this before. You heard times. this before, but I, and what what I'll say is, and and this is kind of, I'm being truthful about what I didn't like about his game. Yes, but also what I'm seeing in his game that I like now. So one of the things that drove me crazy about him is, and you, and we saw his analytics always be strong, the Corsi and the zone entries, and it's like, well, yeah, he'll get a zone entry, but then he'll throw the the weakest, softest shot from the blue line to the net. The goalie will scoop it or just kind of move it away to one of his defensemen and they, they puck goes out the other end or it's a face-off and he goes off the ice. Nothing really happens. There's so many shots and bad angles where there's no no rebound. It doesn't generate anything. But you know what it does? Man, it helps your Corsi. Yeah. Man, it, it helps your analytics because you're spending time in the offensive zone and you're throwing weak shots in, but you're not generating anything. You know, like, I'm like, it's, it's effective, but it's not $5 million effective. And it's not something I feel that you should invest in on the team. Over the stretch right now with this third line, how often have we seen Connor Garland, Garland throw a weak, useless shot at the net? How often have we seen him get into the zone and just throw a backhander from the wall that the goalie just scoops up and or just passes off to a defenseman? Not, He's not, not as often. That. Not, and isn't a perfect example the play where he sets up Dakota Joshua the other day? It really is. Um, you know, you see it maybe earlier in the season. That's a moment where Garland just throws it at the net. 
and hopes for the best, you know, <laughs> throws up a prayer maybe. And that's one of the things that can annoy you about Garland's game at times. Hey, maybe it results in an offensive zone faceoff and you get Patterson over the boards or whoever it might be. And, and they can generate something off of that. Sure. I like, yeah, there's, there's some value in it, but when it's happening as often as it does with Garland, the value is diminished. And instead of just throwing the puck towards the net, he waits a beat for the play to develop for Joshua to get positioning and then to make eye contact with Joshua before hitting that slap pass that, that Joshua tips into the net. And that's, you know, that's, that's an evolution of how this line has come along, how Garland's come along and the chemistry that's developed with this line. Absolutely. And you have to give uh, the other guys credit too. Like to me, the MVP of that line is Connor Garland, no doubt. You know, he's a catalyst. He's the most talented player on the line. He's the playmaker. Uh, And, I think it's also a situation where it plays to his strengths. Mm-hmm. I don't think he plays off well with Pedersen. I don't think he plays well with JT Miller. Or not as well, I should say. I think the lines aren't as effective. I think they can be effective in terms of their under- underlying numbers because there'll be some volume, but I don't think the chance generation is where it needs to be. I think the sustainability of how they play isn't exactly where you need it to be. But where when Garland gets to be the guy on a line, yeah, I think it all comes together. But I think Dakota Joshua, and Teddy Bluger I got all the time in the world for, but I'm so impressed with Dakota Joshua, Dan. He's Can, become a wall guy. He, he really has. But more than anything, like how often did we see a guy show up to camp and it's like, okay, you had this great opportunity from last yeah. year. You didn't show up in the shape you needed to be. Are you going to fumble this opportunity for you to make some real money after you've toiled as a quad A player for most of your career and you got a chance last year? Are you going to throw it out away? And it looked like he made up, may have. But to his credit, and you have to give the coaching staff a lot of credit for this too, they challenged him, but they believed in him. They worked with him. And look at where his game's at now. Like, he's playing better than he played last year right now. Yeah. He wins so many battles along the wall, and it's part of the way that line has developed their identity. All right? They get the puck in deep. Joshua's in first. Garland's close by. He'll find a way to chip the puck to Garland, and then they can start generating some offensive zone time and some offensive zone pressure off of that. It's really like there are moments in a game where I see Joshua winning pucks. You know, he's done this thing the last couple of games where he, if it's on the PK or late in a game where he'll just hold the puck up against the wall and there'll be like three opponents trying to dig it away from him, and he'll eat away 10, 15 seconds because he's just so hard, has got so much size, so much heft Mm -hmm. that it's nearly impossible to move him off the puck. And so like he's bringing a lot of value to the role that he's found on the Canucks, and I, I at the start of the year, it was a real wonder if it was ever going to get there for for Josh. Well, absolutely, and you look at it now, and, and he's been fantastic. And ultimately, it's one of those things where he, is he playing so well that he might price himself out of a return in Vancouver? There's a few guys doing that here. I think Sam Lafferty, same thing. And yeah. that's not to say that they don't deserve to get the money. I, I, God bless them. I hope they get as much money as they can, especially for guys that haven't really earned a big paycheck yet. Can they get like a $10 million contract, $12 million contract for three or four years or five years or something? And that's going to be massive for players that haven't really earned big coin before, right? A player with Joshua's size and profile, like the way he's playing right now, showing a little bit of goal scoring touch, this now his second year doing that. It's, you know, he's trending towards being like a $2 million player from right now where he is at uh, less than a, less than a million bucks. It seems unlikely that they're going to be able to keep Lafferty, Dakota Joshua, Bluger, and Garland next year while still improving the team. 
Yeah. Like it's, there, there, there isn't enough money to go around. Now, that's a problem for next year, honestly. A problem for the offseason that you worry about. But in terms of how they're playing, I think that's the thing. And how Teddy Bluger has performed, too. When you have a player on that line down the middle who's a really good centerman, I mean defensive centerman, I think that also makes a big difference. I think the reason why they've been so effective is now you have the guy that allows the offensive play to flourish, but is good defensively and in coverage that the line isn't costing you at all defensively. Even when they have to spend some time at their own end, with the way Teddy Bluger defends, they get like they don't spend too much time in their own zone and he does a really good job of protecting the middle of the ice he does a really good job of helping the breakout playing down the middle of the ice so as much as yes the wings have been fantastic you can't d- diminish or you can't dismiss i would say the contribution that teddy beluga is bringing to the line and what it means to have a defensively adept smart centerman especially when you have a couple wingers that can go the way those guys are going right now he is uh, always staying above the puck you know and and it really provides a nice little balance for Joshua and Garland after they get in down low and, and try to work uh, the offensive zone. So it's like I, I mentioned it on the pregame yesterday, you know, even if you want to, since we talk so much about the underlyings, their underlyings have been really good yeah. and they were showing that they deserved more results than they were getting. And now those results have started to come, but more importantly, you know, Garland at 5 million bucks, always going to be a little bit of an awkward fit at that dollar figure in today's salary cap situation and having it been a flat cap for the last couple of years. However, you're not really quibbling with it because there's a real value that he's bringing to the team right now. And you can see it influencing results in the way that he's playing and the way that line's playing and the way that he has finally found himself a role because it had always felt up until this point outside of a few hot streaks here and there, square peg, round hole, yeah. square peg, round hole. Like it was just not working with Connor Garland, which led to the story at the start of the year, his agents out there looking for potential trade fits. Doesn't feel as much of an awkward fit right now for Connor Garland. And you're starting to feel throughout the roster. There are a lot fewer and maybe only one awkward fit on the roster with the way it's standing right now, Seth. Yeah, and I mean, and that guy is a player that we saw be so prolific last season, scored 39 goals, and still features on the first power play unit that you still have hope, and at least you're... Yeah, I'd say hope's probably the right word. You have some hope that maybe he regains that, and that's Andre Kuzmenko. Yeah. He's playing on the fourth line, which is it's an awkward fit for a player like him, for instance, because of how they want that fourth line to play. But... Do you feel like the door has closed on him reestablishing himself as a fit on the roster? Like it's like with Garland, we're like, hey, before the season, it was like, hey, the fit isn't in your top six. The best fit for him is a third line. But how good can that third line be for it to make sense? Well, now he's crushing it so much that you're like, okay, it makes sense. Like the fit yeah. actually makes sense. Big picture, again, in the offseason, would you still like to do something with that money? Perhaps. But it's working in a big way, right? We know with Kuzmenko, it can work. It has worked. Yeah, the capacity is there for him to work in the top six. I wonder how much longer they go with Kuzmenko on the fourth line. It's going to be a matter of time, doesn't it? It, it feels like it. You know, he had those games with back-to-back goals, and maybe because Mikheyev and, and Lafferty were working for a time, you tried something. Uh, you tried to keep it going, see if it was going to last. Yesterday they tried Suter. It was okay, but I, it's really hard to see how you're getting the most out of Andre Kuzmenko at five and a half million dollars while he's sitting there on the fourth line. Like, you know, I, 
I'm cool with Nils Oman. I, I think he's uh, done a lot to earn himself a role on this team, and he's shown some defensive capabilities, but he's really shown very little offensively, especially in this recent call-up and chance to play at the NHL level again. And so you're only going to get – like you're not going to get much out of Andre Kuzmenko sitting there on that fourth line. And I also think it works the other way too where as much as Pedersen is still playing well – like, are you getting as much offensive output as you could with Elias Pettersson when he's not playing with at least one other offensively dynamic player? Yeah, I mean, Mikheyev has more than held his own, right? Yeah. But he's not this offensive dynamo. No. You know, and... He's um, not a guy that profiles, like, that you'd say, wow, this guy's a real offensive talent. Yeah, and that's why Kuzmenko... There's still a spot, I think, for Kuzmenko here if, if he can regain the trust of the coaching staff and do some of these things. Because you're right, I think the ceiling in terms of what he can provide... Mm-hmm. is a lot higher than some of the other options the team has now currently in, in those spots. They're still finding ways to get by with with that. But to your point, when you start looking at the roster, like what are the awkward fits? Before it was like, yeah, man, you have Tyler Myers playing, being your number one righty defenseman, playing two twenty two minutes a game. Like that's a tough fit. Mm-hmm. Now he's playing on your third pair. Yeah. It's a bit different. A little bit different. You're not, not so worried about Tyler Myers with the way that he's playing right now. And you find a partner with him with Zadorov. They're, they're finding some chemistry. It's working. Right. Um, and I mean, just just go through the rest of the roster. Like there isn't somebody outside of Kuzmenko. And he, again, has shown a propensity and ability to play in the top six. So the fits are all are, are a lot better. So in terms of like problems with the roster, I don't think there are any quote unquote problems. I do think there are areas for improvement. Of yes. course, you can always get better. You can always improve upon some players that you have and some options that you have available to you. But I don't think they're sitting in a situation where it's like it's dire. It's yeah. like, this guy doesn't make sense. Like, we have to figure this out. Like, there isn't that sense. The only guy that was like that was Bavillier. Like, it didn't yeah. make sense. It was like, he's, he's playing your fourth line, not in We're your top six. We're paying this guy $4 million. Like, like I, we could really be using this money better elsewhere. But he's not great defensively. He's okay. Like, it's just not a great fit. Now he's gone. Yeah. Like, there, there aren't many guys like that. And I think that, that goes a long way as well, because now every player on the roster has a, has a real role. They embrace that role, and there's an identity with how they play that role. And, and once, once you give people a role and they start forging an identity doing those things, the ownership comes into it. And I think that's kind of part of the unquantifiable when you get a team going the way this yeah. Canucks team is going. You get people believing. You get people taking ownership in what they're doing because they have something they can look at and say, this is what I'm doing today. And this is how I'm going to have success. And this is how I'm going to repeat my success. It goes back to the discussions we've had with Yannick over the years, the last couple of years, about you need to have players that have prescribed roles that can take ownership in those roles. And I know BX, I mentioned this you know, a couple of years back about, hey, when we, we, we had the 2011 team, we had players that wanted to be the best penalty killers. We had a player that wanted to be the, the hardest player to play against. We had a player who wanted to be the biggest hitter in the league. Like each one of these guys had a design role and they took real ownership and they worked on those things in practice. They worked on how they were going to excel in those roles. And I'm not comparing this team to that 2011 team, but it's just to show when you put guys in positions to have success, they buy into it and take ownership of it. Teams come together a lot better. The one area that will be a talking point when Carson Soucy is back from injury is what do you do with your four left shot defensemen and two righties? You know what? Uh, you guys had a great chat last week, or it was the week before. Time is, is a flat circle at this yes. point for me. With Nikita Zadorov, you and Bick when I was away. And he said he doesn't feel very comfortable playing no, the right side. No, he was pretty honest about it. Right? <laughs> it's like, I played my last few games in Calgary on the right side. I, I don't uh, love it. No. Is, is, the op- is the solution just not Ian Cole? 
who's think, probably who's probably the guy that when we spoke to him, he's, he says he's comfortable doing so. Has the most experience out of all the guys doing so. Yeah, he does have the most experience. He did it with Carson Soucy actually in their Minnesota days together. So I wonder if that ends up being a pair moving forward here. Yeah, where you have Carson Soucy and Ian Cole, because as as much I know, there's been a lot of discussion. We talked about it too with with Hughes and Hronick. Um, they're not as prolific as they were earlier in the season, but I still think you get enough out of that pair that you're uh, going to see the better side of it eventually here once they find their game again. And the way the rest of the D is working, it's like, okay, they know their role. They understand, hey, we're going to be the – Myers and, and Zadorov, we're going to play hard defensively. We're, we're big. We know we got to play to our strengths and those things. And then it's just going to be about Cole and Susie finding a little bit of a, a chemistry together. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a big part of how that's going to all come together. And is there a chance that Susie plays the right side too, who has some experience do so, doing so? I think that's a possibility. They can flip-flop. I mean, we saw Susie in training camp with Quinn Hughes on the right side, and yeah, he looked uncomfortable at times. So I think it's going to have to be a bit of a work in progress. Yeah, and Cole and Susie played t- together on the same D pair in Minnesota yeah. some years back, and Susie played uh, the left side, and Cole played the right side. So there is some chemistry there, or at least some familiarity from the past that you can rely on a little bit. So, so I think yes, you know, there are clearly things that can improve on. And, and somebody texted in and says, "Package Kuzi and Susie for a top six winger or or a right handed defenseman." Uh, and somebody else texted in and, and said something along the lines of. Um, are the Canucks going to hold on to some of these guys? Like, for instance, Dan and Poco, are they going to ride with them or let Myers and Cole both walk for nothing? Are they going to look to package some of these guys? I would say with this front office, none of that is out off the table. Yeah. And I'm not reporting anything. I'm just saying they're going to be looking at trying to make the team better. This is something Rutherford himself said. I don't think they're going to, you know, bend over backwards to make things happen. But I do believe they're open to a lot of different things. And I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they make a bigger move at some point to improve the team. Because they don't have awkward fits as much anymore. But you can still improve a roster. There's always room for improvement if you make the right type of a deal. The one thing I wanted to address as well, because this keeps coming up, sustainability. Yes. And Jazzy kind of mentions, you know, he read Harm's piece uh, on The Athletic uh, about how, hey, the, the percentages are great this year. It's fantastic. This season can lead to a lot of success like we're seeing. We saw Seattle do the same thing. They beat big, they beat Colorado in the playoffs in the first round, went to the second round, maybe even would have been able to get farther. Like they had a really good season last year. And this year it's kind of crashed back to earth. And Jazzy says it's pretty depressing if that's what's going to happen with Vancouver next season. While I agree that they're probably not going to shoot at the same rate, like we spoke about Kuzmenko next year, and all these things are there, the first thing I'd say is sometimes we worry too much about the future as opposed to like, hey, can you take advantage of at least of what you have going on here? And the other thing I would mention about Seattle, and it's true, they're not the same team, but they lost over 44 goals in Daniel Sprong, Morgan Geeky, and there's another player that uh, they also lost. Yeah, Ryan Donato. Donato had 14 goals, Geeky had 9 goals, and Daniel Sprong had 21 goals in 66 games. They lost 44 goals they didn't replace. Yeah. Their defense got worse last year as well. They lost Susie, they didn't replace them. So I agree that a team like Seattle's taking a step back, but if we dig a bit deeper into them taking a step back, how much of that is regression, which I think is a part of it, and how much of it is their roster's not as good as it was last year? Yeah, I think it's uh, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. And I think for Vancouver, for this Canucks team, and just like Rutherford himself mentioned, they believe the window's just opening up. Yeah. Which means you're still looking to make other moves with this roster, trying to make this team better. And I think 
the only way you can prevent next year being a step back is improving the team. Yeah. It may not be easy, but that's the, that's the key. I mean, to me, I'm not looking at this team and saying, hey, this is going to be the best they're going to be for five years. If that's the case, then yeah, it's that's depressing. But I don't I don't buy that as ne- a, a necessarily true outcome. And I think there are ways for you to improve the team still. It can be hard. It's difficult. And so far, they've shown a pretty good propensity of, of finding players that fit. Well, and the other uh, difference I would say about the two teams Ron Francis, his reputation as a general manager in the National Hockey League, passive. Very conservative. Jim Rutherford and now Patrick Alvin as a byproduct of that, their reputation in the National Hockey League as general managers, aggressive. Aggressive in finding solutions for their roster. Are they going to hit it 100% clip? No, but... You know, if you look back on it now, and sure, hindsight's twenty twenty. you might say Ron Francis has been a little bit too passive in trying to replace some of those spots that Seattle lost. I don't ever foresee that being an issue for, for Jim Rutherford-led teams because they're always aggressive in trying to find solutions for their rosters. And, and the other thing to me is, how are you playing as a team? And is regression necessarily going to mean that you're not going to be able to score at all and be out of the playoffs? Or is the regression from, hey, you're not going to be the highest scoring team in the league, you'll be the eighth highest scoring team or the 12th highest scoring team. And if you're in the top 15 in goal scoring and you have great goaltending and good defense, you can still be very successful. Well, and if your foundation is being a, a hard team to play against and, and a strong team defensively, you can live with ebbs and flows of your offense. And that's what they still have to hone in on even more and yeah. improve even more. And if you improve the roster, those things can get stronger as well. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. You are listening to Canuck Central. Canuck Central, it's uh, Dan, Richo, and Satyar Shah. We are uh, a week out from Christmas Day. Hope you got all your shopping done. You done all your shopping yet? Uh, more or less. I, I got the important shopping done. How about that? Okay. All right. And boy, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say uh, the local charity you like to donate to is... Uh, could it take a hit this month? No, no. I, I'll still, uh, I'll, I'll still have to make sure that my, my, the local charity get, gets it. Uh... It's an old dodgeball line. I don't know if you caught it. No, 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 no I didn't actually. When uh, somebody goes to Vince Vaughn to pay his bills to, to for the for the gym, for the average Joe's gym, he starts writing a check like, oh yeah, well, uh, the local charity I'm donating to. Let's take a bit of a hit this month. But I haven't watched that movie in forever. I only know some of the famous lines at this point. Um, uh, I got to go back and watch it again. Is it, do you think it'll be good on rewatch at this point? Does it, does it hold up? Ball? Do you think it'll hold up? Uh, I think it, like some parts of it are still hilariously funny. Yeah, I got to because like my biggest disappointment with some of those movies is you go back and watch and you're like, oh, like it's, <laughs> it's not even funny to me anymore. Yeah, but oh, like man. I found that with Entourage, for instance. You know, the first couple of seasons, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was really funny and, and good. And I remember looking at uh, some of the stuff about it and be like, man, like Entourage was a funny show. I know it really went went sideways and it wasn't fantastic or whatever. But going back to uh, rewatch it again, you know. Going back to rewatch it again, I like it is a rewatchable movie, although I haven't watched it in a long time. <laughs> but if you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. 
Obscure Sports Quarterly, also very funny. Ben Stiller in that movie, great. Um, it's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We did get a lot of texts in the last segment about the awkward fit of Andre Kuzmenko. This text, I think it's fine keeping Kuzmenko on the fourth line if he's generating goals from there. This way, they don't have to overplay the top two lines. That is uh, from... <laughs> The texter. Uh, I, 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 it's one of those things where it sounds good in theory, but in actuality, does is that what's going on? It is definitely not what's going on. <laughs> Andre Kuzmenko. Did what, he even play what, in the last eight minutes of last night? No, game? I don't think he did. He he was. Andre I, Kuzmenko's ice time has. I would been say like, it's he's a ghost in the third period for a lot of these games, but it's mostly like he's just not trusted to play. Late in games, Andre Kuzmenko eleven oh nine yesterday. Yeah, and look, Rick Tockett. It does. You know what? It doesn't necessarily matter which line you're playing on, because Nils Hoglander ended up playing less than ten minutes last night. Well, Nils Oman played less than nine minutes last night. I think part of that also comes down to special teams and the Canucks power play. I mean, I mean, if you want to talk about perhaps a little bit of a negative, and the Canucks did get a goal on the power play, but the power play has obviously you really like slipped in terms of its efficiency the last little bit. Mm -hmm. But when you have a lot of power plays and a lot of special teams like there have been the past few games, that's going to limit Andre Kuzmenko's ice time. That's going to limit the ice time for a guy like Niels Hoaglander as well. Because if you look at it, I mean, Miller's still playing almost 20 minutes a game. Pedersen's almost playing 20 minutes a game. I look at the average ice time for Elias Pedersen. So it's 19.52 for this season. Uh, and these past, what, six games where Kuzmenko's kind of been on, you know, the, the fourth line, he's averaging 19.55. Yeah. So it sounds great in theory. I'm not quite sure in actuality that it is going to limit their ice time significantly. I think it'll really depend on game situations and special teams that's going to dictate that. Because Mango ended up playing like less than seven and a half minutes at five on five yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's it's got to be more. Like if you want the guy to have an influence on the game, he's got to be on the ice more than that. So uh, I get it. You know, the, the roster is... It's playing really well right now, and you're having success. You put Kuzmenko on the fourth line, and the team has won, what, five of six games? <laughs> so it's not as though Kuzmenko's loss is being – or Kuzmenko on the fourth line is being felt by the team. You know, it's – the team is having success. Yeah. And maybe it's going to take a loss or two for the coach to think differently about Andre Kuzmenko's current spot on the roster. But they need to find a way to get him more offensive opportunities. And, you know, I, I put this stat on Twitter yesterday about Elias Pettersson. Actually, this morning about Elias Pettersson. His first 16 games, he had seven goals and 26 points. Yeah. The next 16 games, now this just happens to be a, a happy split because they've played 32 games. So it is still somewhat arbitrary, but... Half and half. Hey, have fun with some numbers here. Uh, the next 16, five goals and 13 points. Now, a lot of that was seen. And I didn't tell you how to read the tweet. I didn't offer any sort of opinion on this statistic. I just put the statistic out there for everybody else to have their own thoughts and opinions on it. And, oh, boy. People had takes. People they had, had takes. They had opinions. 
<laughs> they uh, projected their opinion onto the uh, no context stats you provided. Yes, and it, one of them said. There's the negative Vancouver media tweet I was waiting for after getting three out of four points on back-to-back road matinee games. Let me guess. Is it, is it the Canadian hustler guy? Yes, it is. That guy goes at you all the time. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, Dan can say whatever, no matter what, and, and that guy replies to you no matter what. Like, yeah. he's, he's, he's Dan Riccio's number one reply guy, and it's always like, why so negative, Reach? Reach will be like, this might hey, be the th- only guy that thinks I'm actually negative about the team, too. It's great. <laughs> Reach can be like, yeah, Elias Pettersson had a five-point performance. Uh, Quinn Hughes had one point tonight. I'd be like, oh, are you trying to say Hughes wasn't good? It's like, well, <laughs> well I'm just saying. Like, Pettersson had five and Hughes had a point. Uh, Pavel Burry's flow. If that's his slump, we are laughing. Uh, Corey Davis, uh, not the wide receiver, just this guy on Twitter. This could be a bit <laughs> of a blessing. Pettersson at $13 million by eight years was looking likely. Now I'd say that number is closer to 11 million and the reality is you know the number uh probably going to be around 11 million maybe a little bit more maybe there's the off chance it ends up being a little bit less on his next contract whatever it may be i think the only bit of um context that i was hoping to get across here is for as much as we've talked about Pedersen and how slow he has been. And I've been guilty of it to myself. Like 13 points in 16 games is still pretty good. And especially when your goal differentials are still positive, like you'll take that. If that's the, if that's the slow period for one of your star players, you'll still take that as a team. So you're right. And like this, this is kind of the point that uh, I've been trying to get across in the post game show the last couple of games because people have been critical of Elias Patterson, and it's fair. I mean, you guys can criticize whoever you want; it's not a big deal. It's fine. Like you know, you can have opinions. But when when I see stuff like why doesn't Elias Patterson get benched? Why doesn't Elias Patterson get dropped down into the lineup? His last ten games, Dan, he has ten points. To a point a game. You know what his plus minus is over these last ten games? What's that? Plus seven. Okay, you'll take that. So, yeah, and he's not, I think we all agree, he's not playing at the peak that we've seen Elias Patterson play at. But so he's not playing well these last 10 games to a lot of people, and he still has 10 points, and he's plus seven. So he's not hurting the team. Yeah. yeah is, he, is he winning them games the way people want? Yeah, perhaps not, but they've picked up points in six straight games. Yes. Like sometimes I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm listening to things and I'm going, like, what is going on here? Like, yeah. I get it, and it's fair. Well, but now it's... again, it comes back to what we talked about in the first, first segment. It's like, People project these narratives sometimes that are not truthful just because they sound good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, Pedersen's not producing. You can't win with this guy. It's like, well, they, they've picked up points in six straight games, and they've won five of those games. If Pedersen has 10 points in his last 10 games, like, what are we talking about here? Comes, you can't win with this guy, and he's not being productive. Like, it's still, it's still being productive. But I do agree there's another level to his game that he showcased earlier this year that he hasn't quite been able to scratch at yet. There are, I mean, look, McDavid went through it early in the season, wasn't quite playing at the level you expect Connor McDavid to, and now he's been on fire for the Edmonton Oilers. Austin Matthews went through it. There was a little bit of a lull there. He started hot, then he kind of tailed off, flatlined a little bit, and has picked it up more recently and leads the league in goals again. You see it from pretty much every star player. You're just not watching that player as closely as you might watch the star player on the team that you normally consume. So there is that context. Now, one of the things that I am going to keep an eye on, and something we've talked a little bit about, it, it is the quality of competition and winning the matchups against 
you know, the other top lines in the league, you know, didn't have the best game against Vegas, didn't have the best game against Colorado. He's had a couple of tough outings. You know, he still had two assists against the New Jersey Devils, but, you know, there was a couple of bad moments in there for him as well. So, you know, there's still a want to see Pedersen go toe-to-toe with the other top centers in the league and clearly win the matchup. But right now, you know, it is a bit of a small sample size, and we got to see a little bit more of those games come to pass before we make a judgment of saying Pedersen can't win the matchups against the biggest players in the league. And that's uh, that's something that, you know, I think we'll, we'll tell – We'll find out as uh, the second half of the season comes in. So I thought, you go back, you mentioned the last 16 games, and I think uh, the six games prior to these last 10, mm-hmm. I think that was kind of the, the spot where Patterson struggled the most this right. season, where it wasn't just about the offensive game not being there, it was a defensive game wasn't there. We it talked about that. Bit, We're like, yeah. hey, even defensively, he's making mistakes. Like We spoke about um, him making bad line changes, for instance, and he had some bad moments with the puck, and you're like, what's going on? Like He's... he's He's not even playing well defensively, and one of the hallmarks of his game was playing well defensively. I think the last few games, he's been a lot better playing I as a two-way re- player. Against Minnesota, his uh, two-way game was really good. You know, He did some really good things yes. against Minnesota and you know, didn't end up with anything to show for it, but uh, I thought, you know, we can't say that points are the only thing that matters uh, aren't the only thing that matters when we evaluate a player and then when a player doesn't score a point in a game be like well he didn't score a point so like you know and the power play was bad so ergo Elias Pettersson was bad against Minnesota I, like that's that's unfair, you yeah, know. That that's an unfair criticism of a player. But, but there is a burden that comes with excellence. Yeah, there is an expectation that 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 excellence has to always be there. And I don't disagree that once you give that guy the contract he may be looking for, which might be ten plus eleven plus million, then I understand. Like you're not just judging on a guy, judging a guy for being close to point per game or or being solid. It's like, hey, if you're paying a guy this much, you're expecting for the most part of the season for him to play at a peak that resonates with that contract he's getting. So I, so I don't disagree that, you know, when you pay a guy, there should be higher expectations. And I think it's, it's, I actually think it's a privilege for a player to feel that type of pressure. Yeah. Because that means you're just so good that people expect that excellence from you and you have to keep that up. And I think it's a privilege for somebody to be that good and that excellence that people are expecting him to always be at that level. But there's a real, real, there's a realism about it's a long season. There will be ups and downs. Every player goes through it. And that's why we talk about players having career years having monumental seasons because you can't always have a 120 point year right no. like it, unless you're Connor McDavid I guess but outside of that and that's why that guy probably should get paid 15 16 million we're not talking 10 11 we're talking a different stratosphere of money that a player like Connor McDavid might be looking at right and he still signed a contract that's still team friendly based on all that so all those things there are true but his defensive game has been better and, and actually for all the talk about the Connor Garland line and we spent the first segment giving them their bouquets yeah I thought Patterson's line was the best lining in Chicago like mm-hmm. by far their best line they didn't generate the offense of course that you saw uh, Garland generate in terms of goals but they kept the puck in the offensive zone gave next to nothing up defensively and they were just crushing their matchup and uh, one of the things I think I myself am running into with Pedersen is I'm judging him on a contract he hasn't even signed yet. Yeah. And that's something we've got to be cognizant of when evaluating this player. You may think he will end up with a $12 million contract, but he hasn't been given that $12 million contract 
just quite yet. And if it even ends up being a $12 million contract is something we have yet to find out. All right, it's a Monday, so you know what? Let's get to the Monday menu. Who's hot, who's heating up, and who is uh, ice cold and returning to the kitchen for the Vancouver Canucks, and maybe some other things around the league. Or since it's the holiday season, we might have fit in a couple of other things. Uh, On the menu, so who's hot right now? Uh, Hard to move away from Thatcher Demko, second star of the week in the National Hockey League. Didn't even play all four games for the Vancouver Canucks as uh, Casey DeSmith was mixed in there and also gave a pretty good performance for the Vancouver Canucks in net. But for all the talk of, hey, Thatcher Demko, maybe not as sharp as he was earlier in the season, you know, a week later he's uh, the second star of the week because he put up a shout-out and was almost unbeatable. Yeah, and I, and I think... I don't want to rip uh, a lot of the analytics, but when we look at just save percentages... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Raw save percentages are not an indication, no. not a true indication. And, and I think, you know, people got so caught up in looking at Thatcher Demko's save percentage. Like, well, it's 913. Like, look at what it is. It's okay. It's not great. It's like, well, it's about the environment. And it's about what we're talking about, what they're giving up. And there are games where it's like, yeah, he gave up four goals, but look at how those goals were scored. Yeah. And once you go through each one, you're like, okay, well, which one was he, which one was he truly at fault for? And people are like, well, he didn't make a spectacular save. It's like, well, sure, but we're now we're criticizing him for not making a Dominic Hasek type post-to-post incredible save, and he's capable of doing so, but you can't save every single puck that goes across crease that you have to dive for and try to make a save on, right? So I do think a lot of the criticism was overblown based on the environment that he was facing, especially when the Canucks were going through their somewhat struggles, relative struggles so far this year. But he's clearly honed in again. Uh, this is uh, a constant on the menu. It is uh, being evaluated for a potential Michelin star. It's Brock Besser right now. Keep scoring goals. The only thing he missed was scoring a goal in his hometown in Minnesota on Saturday. But, you know, he had the hat trick earlier in the week. He scores again yesterday against the Chicago Blackhawks. Is trying to keep up with Austin Matthews and the rest of the big-time goal scorers in the league. Uh, Brock Besser has been hot. He continues to be hot, and he stays hot this week. Yeah, he stays on the menu. You know, you know when you go through like the food ordering apps, <laughs> and then you look at like a, a, an establishment, and it shows yes. like the number one most liked. Yes, it's like right now, Brock Best should be the most liked on the menu. Uh, he is uh, what you've ordered before, and uh, you continue to order because it is a staple on the menu. Uh, finally, making his uh, first appearance on the menu is one of the hot Canucks, Dakota Joshua. Well, he, he was sent to the kitchen not too long ago. He was returned to the kitchen earlier in the season. Yeah. And when he was being healthy scratched, and there was a lot of conversation about what Dakota Josh was bringing to this team. But now he's hot. Three goals in his last three games. Yeah, and it wasn't just like they went and heated him up. Like, he went and, like, re, re, <laughs> reinvented himself and came back. Dakota Joshua is the uh, T-bone steak of the, of the menu right now. It's uh, an expensive item, but uh, it is... Hot. Uh, simmering is Pew Suter because uh, the coach just will not stop talking about how much he likes Pew Suter. So. Yeah, and it, it, who got elevated into the top six? Yeah. So a big opportunity here for Pew Suter. Zat mentioned he liked uh, that line yesterday as uh, the Canucks' best line, so we'll see if Pew Suter stays there. Yeah, Pew Suter got an assist on uh, the Mikheyev goal. Yeah. And Pedersen doesn't get a point on that play, but it was also critical on how they scored that goal. Uh, also simmering right now, the Vancouver Christmas market. I got to say, I went last week. Really? And I was I, I really enjoyed it. You I did mean, a little bit wow. expensive. It's gonna it's gonna hurt the wallet a little bit. Oh, okay. As is the norm for those types of things. But you know what? I had some langos. 
I had some. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, what? Uh, langosh. It's a it's a Hungarian delight. Okay. And it's the like way a, you say it, it's like yes. uh, as I'm I'm expected <laughs> to know what langosh is. I'm like, what is what what? It's a uh, uh, for the layman. I guess it's a Hungarian pizza. Maybe uh, Dom Tramati can help me out with uh, the the description. But they put like uh, it's like a, I guess it's kind of like a beaver tail, but more of a savory, not sweet type of way of making it. Savory beaver tail. Yeah. So they put like uh, sour cream on it, and they put some cheese and some garlic. Oh man, it is delicious give me the give me the langosh <laughs> add some mulled wine as well i thought it was gonna be like one of those things where i'm just there like taking pictures of my partner and like yeah all right we, we went to the christmas market did it for the gram but i actually enjoyed myself so vancouver christmas market can i give a christmas recommendation to sure. avoid lights at lafarge and prime time <laughs> hours on a saturday night that was my saturday after my shift here following the canucks game do not go when yeah. the weather is nice at around seven o'clock at night because Lafarge Lake is way too small for that amount of people. Are we uh, returning <laughs> lights at Lafarge to the kitchen? Is that, is that what we're doing right time now? Prime time hours a week before Christmas. Yes. Uh, all right. To returning to the kitchen uh, in the Monday menu, traditional panettone. I know they're going around. They're being given out like uh, Christmas cakes right now because they are, and uh, they're being regifted. All around uh, the country, in every Italian household, and by every Italian uh, business person that, oh, oh, that might exist. Panettone is kind of like that cake, right? Yeah, the it, cake that nobody wants. The cake that nobody wants. Always look at the expiry date because it's probably been been regifted. So like you might like, be getting the the regifted panettone from like uh, Christmas twenty seventeen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're gonna gift something, an, an Italian cake, uh, <laughs> do uh, more of the uh, the bocce cake, uh, the pandoro, rather than uh, the panettone. Nobody likes the dried fruit inside. Come on. Unless you're like maybe 77 years old. I don't know. Uh, and uh, the NHL challenge system needs to be returned to the kitchen because uh, I think the Canucks probably would have liked to challenge the second goal yesterday. Didn't really get a view of it that they could really trust. And I don't think that's a play a coach should have to challenge. I think that's something, as Rick Tockett mentioned after the game, like maybe Toronto needs to be the one that, that figures that out. I agree. When it comes to like the puck out of play, it's almost like the the puck crossed the goal line. Yeah. Those are things that I think are should be standard because we're talking about you know either a play should be stopped because the puck went in or the puck was out of play, right? And I, I don't know if that should be a challenge, especially when it's hard for that angle to come up that quickly. You have yeah. 45 seconds to make a challenge, and if you don't have a good view of it and you can't get the video guy to look at it quick enough, you're kind of in a tough spot. Yeah, and you're not you, you don't want to like um, – have to challenge it, you get it wrong, and then now you're on the penalty kill as well after giving up a goal. So I really don't like the way the NHL challenge system is already working. And yesterday was just an, another edition of where it's really broken. So please fix it. Uh, all right, coming up, another coach was fired today. We'll have our take on uh, DJ Smith being out with the Ottawa Senators. That's next on Canuck Central.